Hi, Katie. Hello. Stressful morning here, Dominic. Oh, really? What's happened? I just had my appointment to get my French passport and identity card, which is very exciting as a new French citizen. Ooh. But it was a very classic French administrative encounter, I would say. The lady who was dealing with my application took one look at my passport photo and said, "Non, ça va pas." And I said, "What do you mean? What's wrong with them?" And she said, "You've got a fringe." I said, I know I have a French. What's wrong with that? On the government website, it says you're allowed a French if it's not in your eyes. To which she replied, I don't really care what it says on the government website. The person in front of you is saying that you're not allowed a fringe in your eyes. So you're going to have to centre part it. Go back to the photo machine and take new pictures. Whoa. I mean, to be fair to her, you do often have your fringe in your eyes. <laughs> I'd recently cut it. Also, I look horrible with the centre parting. I look like Kim Jong-un. <laughs> and now I'm going to look like that on my French ID for the rest of my life. Oh, God, that's awful. I'm really sorry for you. I think we should, like, be fair to French bureaucrats and point out that, like, most bureaucrats in every country I know about for passports are really mean about passport photos. It's true. It's not a French exception. Um, how are you? Are you over your bout of the C word yet? Yeah, I'm pretty much recovered now. Even had my birthday this weekend, which was a bit strange in times of corona, but you know. Oh, yet another COVID birthday. I hope it's my last. I mean, at least my last with COVID. Fingers crossed. What's coming up this week, Dominic? We're going to be talking about Europe's housing crisis, and we are very excited to be joined by Cody Hostenbach, who has just this week published a new book, a much-awaited book, about the housing crisis and housing policy in the Netherlands. Our conversation won't just be about the Netherlands, though, as Cody, in his work as a city geographer, best job title ever, mm. has done a lot of research looking comparatively at how different countries' housing policies have led to different outcomes. He's really interesting. He speaks really well about it. So that's coming up later on in the show. But first... Who's had a bad week, Katie? It has been a bad week in Europe for Meta, the parent company of Facebook, because there was quite a hoo-ha over a suggestion that Meta could shut down Facebook in Europe, as well as Instagram, which it also owns. How would we live, Dominic? I think it would be totally fine, actually. Yeah, I don't think things would change for us very much. We have not been very good at posting on Instagram recently, for which I would like to apologise. Um, anyway, last week, Facebook, or Meta, as we must now call Facebook's parent company, they filed a very boring annual report to a US financial authority. And in this very boring report, Meta complained that our data regulation here in the EU is causing them loads of problems and stressing them out. And that if things don't get sorted out, they might, in a worst case scenario, have to pull the plug on Facebook and Instagram in Europe. We just wouldn't have access to them. It sounds like a pretty drastic solution. Um, what kind of problems are we talking about? Well, this is basically an argument over whether all of our personal information on this side of the Atlantic and all of that data about like your shopping preferences and the posts that you've liked and what music you like and what you think is funny. This is an argument about whether or not all of this information can be sent whizzing across the Atlantic and get stored on computer servers that are physically located in the United States. It's a pretty specific argument. But it's turned into a really controversial thing over the past few years, mostly because it turns out the United States does not treat our European data with the same love and care that it treats its own citizens' data with. I am sorry to break it to you. That is quite scandalous. It is. What are they doing differently to 
our data compared to US people's data? Well, the long and short of it is that it's theoretically possible for US intelligence agencies to get hold of all of this foreign data that's moved into the country. And this is because of a couple of surveillance laws that are designed to keep the US safe. But it's kind of interesting because they're not allowed to scoop up their own citizens' data in the same way. It would be unconstitutional, which doesn't really seem fair to me. And it definitely didn't seem fair to the European Court of Justice because over the past few years, they have struck down two agreements which were previously used by US tech companies as their kind of framework for how they moved our data across to their servers in the US. The court was like... We are not happy with this idea that US intelligence can effectively just grab all of our citizens' data when they're not doing that to their own citizens and use it to snoop on Europeans and other foreigners. This is not okay. Mm. So the European Court of Justice isn't happy. Ireland, the country of Ireland, has also been looking at what happens to European data when it gets transferred to US servers. And their National Data Protection Agency tentatively found a couple of years back that Meta specifically is not complying properly with one massive piece of European data protection regulation that you've probably heard of. Uh, It's called the GDPR. And the Irish Data Protection Agency proposed that we should suspend all transfers of EU data to the US until this gets sorted out. Wow. So have these big rulings actually made it illegal for Meta to store our data over there? Uh, that is kind of up in the air right now. The Irish decision wasn't a final one. The final decision is expected sometime in the first half of this year. And the EU and the US are in the middle of trying to renegotiate a new version of one of the agreements that got struck down by the European court. It's an agreement called Privacy Shield. But what Facebook were basically saying in this financial report was... If we can't get this sorted out and we can't carry on transferring European data over here to the US, then we might not be able to run services like Facebook and Instagram in Europe. Um, Silly question, but why do they actually need to put the European data over in the United States of America? That is a really good question. Facebook says it's really important for them to have the data over there to be able to target adverts properly. And that is their entire business model, right? This idea that they know all of this stuff about us and they use that to show us adverts that are like freakishly in line with our interests. I haven't seen a more specific explanation from Facebook about why their ability to do ad targeting is so reliant on the data being storable in the US physically. And actually, I read a really interesting tweet from Grady Booch, who is a very well-known US software engineer. He wrote that he'd actually helped other large multinational companies to help figure out how to host data within the country where it comes from, because it's really not that unusual a thing for a government to ask for. India, for example, has also got legislation on some kinds of data needing to be kept in India. And Grady, the software engineer, he described it as a complex but very solvable issue. He basically suggested that Meta's systems must just be set up really badly if this is such a big deal for them. Mm. But for whatever reason, it apparently suits Meta better to be able to have our data over there, Uh, which is why it issued this really boringly worded threat in its financial report about potentially having to cut off the Instagram tap at some point. I mean, I say it's a threat. Meta are quite cross about people interpreting this as a threat. Uh, They actually issued a statement with the headline, Meta is absolutely not threatening to leave Europe, uh, in which they said, this isn't a threat, guys. We were just identifying a risk and telling our investors about it. 
I saw some uh, politicians, I think a French minister and a German minister, both being like, fine, leave. We don't need you. Yeah. Um, How's it gone down generally in Europe? Yeah, there were some quite funny reactions. Um, Germany's new economy minister, Robert Habeck, said that he hadn't had Facebook or Twitter for four years because he got hacked. And uh, life has been fantastic ever since, he said. (laughs) Robert was actually standing next to the French finance minister, Bruno Le Maire, and Bruno agreed. He said, I can confirm that life would be very good without Facebook. I mean, he says that, but this French minister, Bruno the Mayor, actually has a quite funny Instagram account where he posts weird, unsmiling pictures of himself holding different mugs. Oh. It's really strange. I, I really get a kick out of it. Um, so maybe Bruno was saying that because he would be fine without Facebook, but he would die without Instagram. I don't know. Um, but anyway, in general, there was quite a lot of upset at this idea that Facebook was threatening the EU in some way and trying to hold over us this idea of cutting us off from these social networks if we don't make a policy that suits it. And I do think this reaction from the politicians, like, fine, do it. Life would be great without Facebook. It does reflect the power struggle here. I mean, look, politicians weren't the only people reacting like this. There were tons of comments all over social media from people being like, God, just imagine a world without Facebook and Instagram. Wouldn't it be great? It would like halve the problems that the world has with conspiracy theorists and teenagers feeling bad about their bodies and all of the other misery that social media has created. And that reaction is definitely a reflection of the zeitgeist and how people feel about Facebook in particular. It's had a terrible year in terms of its image after the whistleblower scandal last year and all of these revelations that it knew quite well that its sites and policies were undermining democracy in parts of the world and harming quite a lot of teenagers' mental health. But it's quite difficult to know who actually has the upper hand in this fight between Facebook and the governments of Europe. Because on the one hand, the EU as a block of countries provides Meta with a quarter of its revenues. So the idea of turning off Instagram and Facebook and WhatsApp potentially, which it also owns, the idea of just turning those off in Europe seems insane. Like it does look like an empty threat, especially at a time when Facebook is actually losing users worldwide for the first time. It really needs people to use its sites. So the company does want to find a solution to this whole problem of transferring EU data to the US. And it has said that publicly. Uh, On the other hand, Meta is a massive company that has managed to weave itself into the fabric of our lives and the economy in so many ways. I mean, like how many small European businesses are there that rely on being able to advertise on Instagram and Facebook? Those German and French ministers, they might have been able to joke about how amazing life would be without those platforms. But there are loads of people who rely on these platforms for their livelihoods, for better or worse. There's also all of these jobs that Facebook announced last year that it's creating in the EU. These 10,000 jobs to uh, create the metaverse, apparently, this exciting pet project of Mark Zuckerberg's. So those jobs are also something that Meta could take away from the EU. And it knows that. It does have some bargaining power in these negotiations over the European data transfers. I mean, look, at the end of the day, I think both sides have a big interest in sorting this argument out. We do have very strict data protection laws in Europe, and they're often held up as this like international gold standard. But the dirty little secret is that the GDPR, this huge data protection law, there are loads of bits of the internet where it's still not being properly enforced yet. So for example, the Austrian data regulator just found that Google is in breach of GDPR over its Google Analytics service. So it's not just Facebook that's struggling with this. All of the big US tech companies are running into difficulties. But they're websites that loads of Europeans use all the time. And the politicians know that. 
So I suspect eventually this will get worked out and we will have a new set of rules for how our data gets transferred to the US and we will remain horribly dependent on US tech companies. So this whole Facebook threatening to leave Europe thing has really been a bit of a storm in a teacup. But I think it's a quite interesting storm in a teacup and it says quite a lot about this power play between Europe and the tech giants. Meanwhile, I'm sure there's someone sitting in Brussels like trying to create the European Union's own version of Facebook and it's going to be really dry. (laughs) Really clunky with a horrible logo. To be fair, the existing Facebook logo looks like something that could have been created in Brussels. That's true. (laughs) Who has had a good week, Dominic? It's been a good week for Spanish police who claim to have uncovered a drug trafficking ring that has a rather unique method of drug smuggling. It's alleged that they loaded drugs onto a boat on the Moroccan coast, then pretended their boat was attacked by an orca. They called for help from the Spanish Coast Guard, who then towed them back to the southern coast of Spain, where the drugs would be secretly unloaded bit by bit without detection, whilst the boat was waiting to go out to sea again. Are we really talking about whales for a second week running? (laughs) Whale correspondent Dominic Kramer. Orcas are actually dolphins, Katie. Oh, oh no. Which is actually quite an interesting fact that I discovered. They are commonly known as killer whales, of course, um, but they are actually dolphins, the biggest member of the dolphin family, although dolphins themselves are toothed whales, so you're kind of right. I did not know that. Good fact. I'm going to take that to the pub. Um, anyway, faking an orca attack uh, sounds quite elaborate. Yeah, it does. Although orca attacks actually haven't been that unusual off the coast of Spain in recent years. So Hmm. it's maybe quite a novel ploy. Over the past few years, there have been an extraordinary number of incidents between orcas and boats in this part of the sea. The Spanish Coast Guard has brought in temporary bans for small boats in certain stretches of water a number of times due to this incredibly high incidence of orca encounters. Can it be dangerous then? Well, yes, actually. Orcas are huge and can ram boats pretty far. Forcefully, there have been reports of injured crew members and a number of broken rudders. There are actually some quite incredible videos on YouTube of boats being circled and rammed by an orca, which I recommend everyone should look up. God, it's like Jaws. Yeah, it is. Because they are really powerful animals, but it is quite unusual behavior, at least in this repeated fashion over consecutive years. And it's baffling scientists as to why these orcas are ramming boats. Um, There's a theory that... It's because they feel threatened in some way, maybe due to the fact that they have a shortage of food. And some scientists even purport that these incredibly clever animals have associated their shortage of food correctly with humans, hence the ramming. But anyway, these well-publicized orca incidents were a good cover for drug smugglers to apparently find a way to the Spanish coast with hashish from Morocco, which would then be stored in a room in Cadiz and eventually shipped out of the country across Europe. I should mention that it wasn't only orca attacks that these drug smuggler suspects used as an excuse for needing assistance from the Coast Guard. They had other less newsworthy generic boating damage uh, incidents and excuses, which aren't as fun. And this also wasn't the first sophisticated-sounding smuggling operation between Morocco and Spain. In the last few years, there have been 
police reports of drug smugglers using jet skis to cross the sea, uh, helicopters, drones, and even luxury yachts to smuggle hashish into Spain. Mm. Parts of Spain are very close to Morocco, only 30 kilometers away from each other. And Morocco is a country that produces a lot of the world's hashish. So it makes sense that Spain has become a major entry point for this drug into Europe. In fact, according to statistics from a few years ago, Spain had the world number one position in the amount of hashish impounded. 50% of all the impounded hashish across the world was found in Spain that year. Wow. So it's a pretty hard job for authorities to keep on top of, especially when Spain is also one of the main entry points for cocaine from South America, along with other countries with ports like mine, the Netherlands. If you're interested in finding out more about the changing face of Spain's drug trade, there's a really comprehensive long read in El País in English that I will link to in the show notes. It looks at how the drug trade is developing in many different regions of Spain. And these fake orca attacks took place in the southern region of Cadiz. And the article looks in detail at the city called La Linea de la Concepcion, where a lot of the hashish passes through. And it's not like drugs just pass through the city and everyone gets on with their lives. The money from drugs gangs becomes interwoven into the fabric of the society. And when the region has an unemployment rate sitting between 20 and 30 percent, maybe even higher for young people, there aren't always so many opportunities to make a living. So I really recommend taking the time to read more about the complexities of dealing with drugs gangs in Spain. There are obviously many different opinions on what the solutions should be. But for now, I'm sure the police involved in this specific case are having a pretty good week after having seized 172 kilos of drugs, 63,000 euros, and having arrested two alleged orca attack faking people. <laughs> what a job title. I just can't get over the idea that these drug smugglers were like voluntarily bringing themselves into contact with the authorities. What a bold move. It is really bold, isn't it? And it didn't work in the end. Two wonderful people signed up to support the podcast this week so that we can pay ourselves and our producer. Yay! Huge thanks go to Sasha Kovesnikova and Dan Drew. You can join this delightful squad of supporters by heading to patreon.com forward slash Europeans podcast. It's really very easy. I've heard from a few people recently who finally took the plunge and said, oh, it's actually much more straightforward than I thought it would be. If you are not able to commit to a monthly donation, we'll take whatever you've got and would happily accept a one-off donation. Just head to our website, europeanspodcast.com and click on the support us button. Every so often on our Twitter account, we come across a viral tweet from some corner of Europe, which consists of a completely insane property listing, usually of an apartment for rent that is about the size of a cupboard, and the bed is like inside the shower cubicle, basically. And it'll have gone viral because of the ridiculously expensive rent attached to this property. And regardless of where it is, Dublin or Paris or wherever, people ask the same question, how did it get this bad? And it really is that bad. Those viral posts about rip-off apartments are just kind of a, a colourful illustration of it. But the picture across Europe and across our biggest cities in particular, it's really grim. Nearly 12% of people in the EU live in households where 40% of the disposable income goes on housing. We're looking at price rises both for rent and for buying a flat or a house that have far, far outstripped any rises in people's salaries in recent years, especially with a pandemic on. 
This also isn't just a Western European thing. Housing has been getting more expensive everywhere from Croatia to Estonia. One person who has been looking into the housing crisis for years and trying to understand why this is happening is the Amsterdam city geographer Cody Hostenbach. Cody has a new book out in Dutch that got our eye. It is called Outgewoond, Why It's Time for a New Housing Politics. How would you translate outgewoond, Dominic? Yeah, it's kind of difficult to translate because it's a bit of a play on words. It kind of means worn out, but also lived out, if you translate it directly. In any case, we really wanted to understand how things got so messed up in the housing market and what can be done about it. For those of us living in Amsterdam, we're very well aware of the fact that affordable housing is very difficult to find. Um, Social housing was once the pride and joy of the Netherlands, and it's now an embarrassingly short supply. If you need social housing in Amsterdam, you'll be sitting on a waiting list for around a decade or more. And if you're renting on the private market, you're going to be parting with an uncomfortable percentage of your earnings. How did things in the housing market get so bad? Is it just bad political decision making? We used to have a very large social rental sector, which was quite unique across Europe. Amsterdam was the social housing capital of Europe. Dutch policies have actively undermined it. So now, not Amsterdam, but I would say Vienna is the social housing capital of Europe. So we lost our leading position. The policies of the last 30 years have actively tried to promote home ownership, people buying their home. They've promoted high house prices. So having high house prices now, as in Amsterdam, for example, has been a Dutch policy. And at the same time, policy has also been to sell off social housing, to increase rents and to reduce access to social rent to the lowest income populations. So our former minister of housing... Stef Block, he's a member of the Conservative Party of the VVD. He went to international real estate fairs where he would encourage foreign investors to buy up Dutch social housing with the arguments, we allow you to increase rents more, we allow you to make a buck at the expense of the tenants. Sorry for the slightly stupid question, but why would you deliberately want to push house prices up? The idea was if house prices increase, people owning their home, which is the majority in the Netherlands, almost 60% of Dutch population own their home. If house prices increase, they have the feeling that their wealth increases as well because they are sitting on property that's worth more and more money, which gives them a sense of security, a sense of freedom, a sense of wealth. And this is something you see across countries in Europe and uh, North America as well. So also in the UK, policies have been to push up house prices, to give uh, homeowners the sense of we are financially independent and we can use all this housing wealth to save up for pensions as a security, as a social safety net and to support our children when they have to buy a home or when they are going to university, for example. But of course, as you push up house prices, insiders benefit. Typically, the wealthier, older people, outsiders are losing out because for them, it becomes increasingly impossible to buy a home while rents are deeply unaffordable as well. And more broadly speaking, like how much are the mistakes and the problems that you outline in your book reflected across Europe and how much of it is specific to decisions that have been made by Dutch governments? Policies promoting home ownership, promoting high house prices, inflating house prices through enormous mortgage debts is something that has occurred across countries. Although it should be pointed out that the Netherlands is the mortgage debt champion of Europe. So there's not another country in Europe where mortgage debts are as high as the Netherlands. And simply put, if you can borrow more money, you're going to spend more money on the same housing. It's like you're playing with monopoly money. 
So if you were to become housing minister right now, what would be your first step to improve things in the Netherlands? We have roughly 100,000 homeless people in the country, which is, of course, a huge disgrace. So I think any housing policy should focus on solving homelessness first. That should be absolute priority. And it also relates to the idea of the right to housing. The right to housing is in the Dutch constitution. It's also enshrined in European laws and European declarations of human rights. So taking seriously the right to housing forces you to pay extra priority to the people who are most marginalized. So policies are often focused primarily on middle-class issues because they're the ones voting. They might be journalists themselves, or they might be politicians themselves, or they might have friends who are. Um, so their issues are often taken most seriously and are translated into actual policy. But the problems are, of course, largest amongst the most uh, vulnerable people. So amongst the homeless, there's about 800,000 renter households in the Netherlands who are struggling to pay the rent each month. Each month they're left with the decision, am I going to have a warm meal at the end of the month or am I going to put the heating on because all the money is going to the rent. Solving homelessness, solving the worst issues in terms of housing affordability should absolutely be a priority of any housing minister. It does feel when I talk to friends in the Netherlands and elsewhere who are renters, like they are spending an ever higher proportion of their income on rent. Where I live in France, there's, well, the government has tried to find some sort of solution, in inverted commas, to that problem whereby people generally aren't allowed to spend more than a third of their income on rent, but that creates a whole lot of other problems. If you imagine like a sort of healthy functioning housing market for a moment, is there a number that like seems appropriate to you? Like how much of our income should we be spending on housing? A very broad rule of thumb is that you shouldn't be spending more than 30% of your income on housing. And if you're spending more than 40% on housing, it's really problematic. Now, among young adults in the Netherlands living in the private rental sector, they spend on average 45% of their income on housing. And especially the small private landlords, they might not have these criteria of not spending more than 30 or one third of your income on housing. So they are willing to squeeze out as much rent as possible from these tenants. And that's really problematic. And it also hurts the economy. If you're spending all your money on rent, you can't spend that same money in local shops, for example. So it hurts the local real economy. Uh, another thing I've learned when I was living in Berlin as a student a couple of years ago, I was living with housemates and our rent was incredibly low. It allowed them to work in a bar for two or three nights a week. And that was enough. They were making enough money from working in a bar for two or three nights, which meant that they could spend all their other time on their passions, which was creating music or starting a new business. So low rents actually gave them financial security to uh, be creative. So I think low rents are very important to encourage this creativity and make our cities interesting places to be where you can do something extraordinary. Why do you think that housing isn't a more prominent theme in our politics and especially around elections? I mean, back in the 80s, when there were around 120,000 homes being built each year in the Netherlands, housing was seen as a political priority and many politicians wanted to make it a key part of their manifesto. It doesn't feel like that now. Why do you think that is? I do think that in the Netherlands and elsewhere, 
housing is increasingly a political theme. So we've had housing protests here in the Netherlands, the biggest housing protests since the 1980s. So especially young people are very concerned and are increasingly voicing their concerns. We've seen massive protests in Berlin, for example, and other countries as well. But I agree that it's not as prominent as it should be. One reason is that many of the middle-class people, they're not feeling the housing crisis yet. And as they are increasingly feeling it, it also becomes a political issue because they're the ones that do the agenda setting. A second part of the issue is the fact that we've internalized that it's your individual mistake if you are in a poor living situation. So if you can't buy a home, it's your own fault. If you're spending uh, too much money on rent, that means that you've made the wrong career decisions. You should have opted for a better job. If you're living on the street, if you're homeless, that must have been your own mistake. That must have been your own fault. So we've sort of internalized this idea that it's your individual responsibility to be successful in your career, but also on the housing market. It's basically this neoliberal idea of the individualization of responsibility and of blame, which sort of means that if we think it's our own fault, we're not pointing to the political structures that have caused this housing crisis in the first place. We're also more likely to point at migrants or other people blaming them for the housing crisis than pointing at the political elites for having caused this crisis. Dominic and I have a very pan-European Twitter feed and it's always full of people in different cities like Dublin and Amsterdam and Paris and elsewhere just pointing out the crazy price of housing these days. Mm -hmm. Is part of the problem that there are just too many of us wanting to live there? Yeah, so you do see on the one hand that um, house price increases and the housing shortage, they are strongest in the big cities. And that's partly a demand issue. So indeed, the popularity of urban living has grown immensely in the Netherlands, but basically all across Europe. On the other hand, people often say to me, well, you don't have to live in Amsterdam. And I'm sure your followers also get the same question. You don't have to live in Dublin, in London, in Berlin, etc., etc. But the big problem is that also... Throughout the rest of the country, in the Netherlands at least, it's becoming increasingly impossible to find an affordable home. So home ownership rates among young adults have gone down in the Netherlands across the board. So in 99% of Dutch municipalities, young adults find it increasingly difficult to buy a home, which is indicative. It's The problem is worst in larger cities like Amsterdam, but it's taking place all across the board. And is that fundamentally a problem that people will find it harder to own a house or do we need to get less attached to the idea that owning your house should be a goal? Yeah, definitely. I think uh, we should definitely make an end to the ideology of home ownership. So the idea that buying a home is superior, that homeowners are better citizens, because that's often the implicit notion. We should definitely try to strive for a more equal playing field between owning your home and renting a home. On the one hand, that's an ideological project. So we should try to create a counter-narrative where we see renting as an equal tenure to owning your home. On the other hand, there's also many policies in place that prioritize home ownership. So home ownership in the Netherlands is heavily subsidized uh, through favorable tax schemes, for example, and housing wealth is not taxed here in the Netherlands. We have a mortgage interest tax deduction scheme, which you have in different countries as well. So we all should get rid of all these policies that are favorable to homeowners and are punishing tenants. You talked about how tackling homelessness needs to be really the top priority. 
Homelessness has been rising across Europe for years, and some governments seem to be better at dealing with it than others. I'm really interested in this policy of housing first in Finland, which basically did away with the assumption that vulnerable people should have to work through whatever problems they're facing in temporary housing before they're able to get a permanent place to stay. How well do you think that policy has worked, and do you think it's something that could work in other places? Yeah, so the idea of housing first has becoming increasingly popular and all across Europe homelessness has increased with one exception, Finland, as you mentioned, homelessness has gone down there. And that seems to be uh, very directly related to their housing first policies. But also in the United States and in Germany, they've experimented with this housing first policy and it seems to be successful. What you currently see in the Netherlands and many other countries is that we consider homelessness as a healthcare issue, um, which means that if people fall into homelessness, we first want them to deal with their health problems, maybe their addictions, or maybe there's uh, financial debts involved. We want to have them take care of these issues first. And then at the end of the line, we give them a house. So you have to sort of earn your right to having a house again. But of course, it makes so much sense to do it the other way around. If you get a house as a stable, solid foundation, it becomes easier and easier to tackle other issues you might have. The housing first policy is really promising in that regard, is that it considers homelessness as a housing issue rather than a health issue. And that's a different mindset. And it seems to be successful. And it's also in line with this idea of considering housing a fundamental human right that everybody should have access to. Thanks to our producer Katz Lazo for cycling over to Cody's apartment in a storm so that she could hold a microphone in his face and get us that beautiful crisp recording that you just heard. She got very wet, but it was worth it. Uh, if you read Dutch, go pick up a copy of Cody's book, Outgewoond. It is out now. What have you been enjoying this week? I used some of my COVID isolation to finally read a book. Well done. Yeah, a book that I've been meaning to read for ages. Um, the now not so new Sally Rooney book, Beautiful World, Where Are You? Oh, yeah. I think uh, Mick suggested that in our live show. Oh, yeah, that's true. He did. So this is a double isolation inspiration, but I couldn't help but talk about it. Also, partly because I discovered that the title, which I thought was a bit strange, is actually a translation of a line from Frederick Schiller, the German romantic poet, playwright, Schoenewelt Vorbist Du. So a nice European connection. Yeah. The book, yeah, I've had it on my bedside table for months now and I've been struggling to get into it, partly because the form of the book, it includes a lot of email writing between the two main characters and I found it a slightly dry format. The emails are beautifully and wittily written but it's not quite as dynamic as the more straightforward prose in the book. Mm. That said, I eventually really enjoyed it. I was totally immersed in her world and these four fascinating main characters. She writes dialogue so well. It's always just so quick and witty and believable. And as usual with all Sally Rooney novels, one of her fictional characters seems to have some rather striking similarities to her own life. Alice, one of the protagonists, is an Irish writer who doesn't like the public attention she's getting after having published two incredibly successful books, books that are being adapted for the screen and she's struggling to write her third book. 
definitely not drawing on her own experiences. Well, actually, she has gone on to say that the character is not her. But I have to say, I found that aspect of it quite intriguing. It made it a bit more gripping to kind of think, oh, wow, I wonder how much of this is something that she is experiencing personally. But I really recommend you all go and read it. And if you haven't read her first two books, then start there. She writes about relationships and love and sex in such a captivating and original way. And yeah, I really recommend it. Fine. I've been resisting, but I will read it. Have you read none of them? Yeah, I've read Normal People and loved it, obviously. (laughs) What have you been enjoying, Katie? Um, I watched and enjoyed a French animated film called Summit of the Gods. Uh, It's actually based on a Japanese manga series. And one of the things I like about it is that it's an example of this really deep mutual appreciation between France and Japan, which I didn't know was a thing until I lived here. Uh, But it really is. There's always been those of like cultural swaps and visiting exhibitions and stuff like that. And uh, fun fact, did you know that France is the biggest consumer of manga cartoons outside Japan? I didn't know that. That is a fun fact. Yeah, I think it's because France and Japan are both like classy countries. So they see each other and they're like, yeah. With a classic club. No fringes. No fringes. <laughs> anyway, this film, um, if you like Japanese animated films, stuff like Studio Ghibli, I think you'll really like this uh, because it's stylistically very beautiful. It's about some really hardcore mountain climbers and just how far they can push themselves. I did find myself getting quite angry at times during this film because, and this is a bit of a controversial opinion, These extreme mountaineers felt to me like a very good example of toxic masculinity. Mm. Like, why don't I just put myself in loads of danger so I can smash this really specific record for climbing this bit of Everest with no oxygen? Um, But I don't think everyone will see it that way. It is also a celebration of this human instinct to push ourselves to achieve more. Um, And I think I probably just had a negative reaction to it because I'm like really physically lazy and don't understand sports. Anyway, it is a beautiful film. Let me know what you think of it if you watch it. Hello at europeanspodcast.com is our email address. This week's happy ending uh, was actually brought to my attention by you, Katie. I'm so glad you shared it because it might be the most joyful European happy ending we've ever had. What's this one? Paul, a man from the Manchester area of Great Britain, was on holiday in the Spanish party resort of Benidorm just over 10 years ago in 2011. He was drinking quite a lot of cider one night and just before he and his party were going to leave, he decided to down the remaining cider in his glass. His stomach wasn't thrilled with that choice and he suddenly realised that he couldn't keep it down so he ran to the nearest bin and vomited up. When he came back with his friends, one of them noticed that he was missing his teeth. His dentures had fallen out whilst he was vomiting into the bin. Paul went back to the bin and started rummaging through his sick to try and find them but he didn't have any luck. He thought that was that and he would never see them again. Flash forward to the present. 11 years on, and Paul receives a mysterious package from Spain. The package contains a set of teeth, his dentures. And at first he thought it was a prank, but it turns out it was for real. The dentures had been found at a landfill site in Spain. The Spanish authorities had used DNA records to work out who owned these teeth and found his address and popped them in the post back to him. It's really, truly one of the most bizarre stories I've ever heard. And... I think the Spanish landfill workers deserve a medal. 
do they always do DNA tracing on dentures that are found? Really good question. I guess we just have to take it at face value and enjoy the magic of this wonderful happy reunion. This was such a happy story that also made me incredibly ashamed to be British. (laughs) Uh, We do love vomiting into bins when on holiday. Do we? We will be back next week talking about that thing that we've all been missing, live music. It's actually quite appropriate because I'm going to a gig this weekend, Dominic. I'm quite nervous. I've kind of forgotten how to do it. Now I've had COVID, I feel invincible and I feel like I can go to gigs as well. Go for it. Uh, in the meantime, you can catch us on the social media sites while they still exist here in Europe. We are on Twitter at EuropeansPod and Instagram at EuropeansPodcast. This episode was produced by Katie Lee and Wojciech Oleksiak with help from Kat Laszlo. We are a member of the Are We Europe audio family. Head to areweeurope.eu forward slash audio dash family to find out the other podcasts in their audio offering. Till next week, everyone. Bye. Bye-bye.